You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. Hi, I'm Ros Benson and I'm a rheumatology SPR and a clinical research fellow in the Mersey Deanery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr Mike Hughes about the complex problem of digital ulceration, which is seen commonly in our patients with systemic sclerosis. Dr Mike Hughes is a consultant rheumatologist at Salford Royal in Manchester and the University of Manchester, and he heads up the Tertiary Systemic Sclerosis Centre there. He's an interest in digital vasculopathy, a PhD in digital ulcers, and has been involved in the writing of a number of guidelines. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's great. So thanks, Ros, and, and thanks for the invitation to, to speak and to have this discussion. Brilliant. Well, I thought we probably should start with really the elephant in the room, which is that we're talking about digital ulcers, which are something that are really visual. Um, and obviously, this is a podcast. So perhaps, is there a good place that you could recommend our listeners to look at some good images of digital ulceration if it's not something that they're well versed in? So, yeah, I think digital ulcers, they're very common. So around half of patients will have digital ulcers throughout the course of disease and around 5 to 10 percent of patients at any time. So they're very common. They're very visual. So I think that there's a number of uh, review articles and recommendations that have been published. We've written in rheumatology a few years back a review article on digital ulcers, which has some examples. But also um, patient-led organisations like SRUK have good information, not only for patients, but clinicians on, on digital ulcers. Brilliant. That gives us a good sort of place to look. And I guess um, one of the things that we think about when we're examining patients with systemic sclerosis is we look for digital pitting scars and also obviously active ulceration. And can you talk us through a bit of a difference between digital pitting and digital ulcers? So that's a, a really interesting question. So I think that uh, digital ulcers, uh, as we know, are a cardinal feature of systemic sclerosis, but the digital pitting has been much less studied. So we recently looked at uh, digital pitting uh, scars in the USTAR database. There was around a, a prevalence of 50%. So digital pits are common as well. But I think they are different, but they represent a, a continuum or a spectrum of digital vasculopathy in systemic sclerosis. So there's definitions that have been proposed by the World Scleroderma Foundation and also the UK Scleroderma Study Group on digital ulcers, and they tend to be defined as a loss of epithelium and a discernible depth. I think they're often challenging to assess because there's often overlying hyperkeratosis and scar tissue and eschka. But I think a loss of depth is what characterizes a digital ulcer. Again, as I said, digital pits have been very little studied, but these are hyperkeratotic pits and they don't necessarily form after an ulcer. They can occur independently as well. But again, to, to highlight, they're a spectrum of irreversible tissue loss affecting the digits. That's really useful pointers. And I, I guess thinking about that, um, not all of our patients with systemic sclerosis will go on to develop digital ulcers. Are there particular risk factors that we should be thinking about um, or aware of as to who might develop them? Yeah, so I think practically speaking, uh, around half of patients will have 
ulcers throughout their disease. And unfortunately, some of them will have recurrent, uh, recurrent or even chronic ulcers. So I think that most patients will develop their first ulcer within the first five years. So three quarters will have their first ulcer within the first five years. So if they develop ulcers after, particularly if they're asymmetrical, we always need to think about the possibility of large vessel disease, a proximal or an obstructive problem higher up, or other causes like antiphospholipid or atherosclerosis. But there's been a number of risk factors both clinical and also laboratory factors that are predicted of digital ulcers. I think that one of the most strongest is previous ulceration. So those patients that have had a previous ulcer are more likely to ulcerate again in the future. Those with severe digital vasculopathy, including those with a, a history of critical digital ischemia, but also potentially those with the anti-SCL70 antibody as well. But there's many different risk factors and we need to be vigilant. We need to educate our patients throughout the course of their disease to be vigilant for digital ulcers and, and to seek advice early and, and intervention. But certainly in, in my practice, those that have had certainly recurrent ulcers are higher risk than those that haven't ulcerated before. Well, that leads on nicely to my next question, really, which is thinking about that cohort of patients who have recurrent digital ulceration. Obviously, um, Bicentan is a drug which we are um, able to access more widely than in the past. Um, and I wondered, how does it feature within your practice? And how what's been your experience of it as a drug? Do you find that patients tolerate it well? So uh, are we going to talk more about the, the sort of treatment pathway for digital ulcers? Yeah, well, perhaps if we, yeah, that would be good. If we talked through a bit about the the general pathway and then um, we could come in, come to think about in a bit more detail, Bacentan, I think, because I think probably for many people listening of the drugs that we use, that's the one that they have the least experience with. So obviously, patient education and, and non-pharmacological treatments first line. So patients need written education and, and there's a particular need for the, the specialist nurse who's expert in wound care management. So patients need to protect their digits. A number of ulcers, particularly those over the extensor aspects, are related to recurrent microtrauma and due to skin tension. So there is an element of self-defense and the patients need to protect the vulnerable sites, for example, over the small joints. I think that patients need to maintain their hand mobility as best as they can. There's a role for keeping the skin hydrated, avoiding abrasions. But certainly when, we, when we're faced with the ulcerating patient, we have two phases, if you like. You have the active episode where they present with an ulcer, but then we have the intercurrent area or episode. And I think a very a practical way to look at it is that certainly when a patient presents with an ulcer, whatever you're doing is not only treating that ulcer, but it's preventing the next round of ulceration as well. Because many of the treatments that we use are not only helpful to heal ulcers, but they may prevent they may prevent or, or certainly reduce the severity of future ulcer episodes. I think that's a really useful delineation between the active and the intercurrent phase of ulcers. Um, I guess so with a patient who rings up the helpline with um the an active digital ulcer, which they're concerned about. 
Um, how within your practice um, do you take the next steps? Do you try to see them sort of face to face urgently? Um, So, yeah, we have an open door policy uh, and, and we work particularly closely with our hand surgeons as well, who have got great expertise with systemic sclerosis patients. So we have a dedicated email address where patients can send photographs of their digital ulcers. And certainly during the COVID pandemic, that's been invaluable to assess. And I think you can do that with photographs. Certainly, you can tell whether there's ulcer complications or potential infection. So I think having an open door policy and I think photographs really help you to, to risk stratify digital ulcers, uh, yeah. whether they need to be seen and, and to provide some remote advice. And if you do get sent a photograph through and you think this looks to be potentially an infected ulcer, what are your next steps in both sort of the clinical assessment of that and then in terms of radiological and pharmacological management of it? So I think that um, I think most ulcers are infected. Whether or not that's clinically relevant is difficult. I think we often see signs of inflammation like perilesional edema or, or erythema. I think that's very common. And that may be due to biomechanical or local factors like calcinosis or due to stretching of the skin. But I think that we have a low threshold to treat for infection, often covering for staph aureus as well as other species. Around 25% are also infected by enteric organisms like Pseudomonas and other species. So hand hygiene is absolutely um, essential. So uh, again, we have a low threshold to bring these patients up to clinic. We assess them looking for signs of abscess or even fistula around the ulcer. We, we obviously arrange for plain radiography, but a caveat with that is that it often takes several weeks for osteomyelitis and for bone changes to be seen on a, on a plain radiograph. So we have a low threshold to arrange for an MR of the digit if we think there may be underlying bony infection like osteomyelitis. But again, the, the, we have a, a very low threshold to treat with appropriate antibiotic. Yeah, which often, I guess, is intravenous if there's concern about osteomyelitis, isn't there, within this cohort? Yeah, I think so. I, certainly if, if we're concerned about um, osteomyelitis, but um, for superficially uh, infected ulcers, then I think that oral was quite reasonable, certainly in the acute phase. Yeah, yeah. And I guess something that you've touched on a bit is about the relationship that we have with um, our hand surgeon colleagues. I just wonder where how you see their role in the management of digital ulcers and, um, and debridement of sort of hyperkeratotic skin. Is that something which you do within your practice? See, so we have a very um, strong relationship and uh, the surgeons here have great expertise looking after patients with systemic sclerosis. And, and many of the rules that they use for general hand surgery don't apply to the scleroderma patient. So, for example, with amputations, they usually look to see blood or uh, they'll usually resect until they see visible vessels. But that's not applicable necessarily to scleroderma patients. You have a cold anaesthetic theatre. So I think that uh, th th you need to build a very close relationship with your plastic or your hand surgeons, that they understand the complexities of the disease. So we have a low threshold for them to be involved and to assess the wound. 
I, in my practice, I've learned how to debride ulcers in clinic. So a local, a non-surgical debridement with a scalpel or caret. We can also do it with different forms using, for example, different dressings. But certainly the role of the surgeon would be for a, a deep or surgical debridement. And particularly if there's abscess or if there's underlying necrosis of, of, of the tissue or osteomyelitis, and sometimes potentially the, uh, amputation as well. Certainly here at Salford, we've got um, colleagues that are very interested in uh, digital sympathectomy. So essentially cutting the sympathetic tone to the nerves, and that can help with ulcer healing. It can be beneficial for Raynaud's as well but also Botox injections at the level of the palmar arch or the digital artery. And that can help to, particularly in the acute setting, it can help to provide extra blood supply to that digit, particularly if it's threatened. It's really interesting. It's not something I've, I've really thought about much before, the role of Botox within this. I guess in terms of thinking about the supply of blood flow and trying to maximise that to especially a, a, an ischemic looking area of tissue around an ulcer um there are quite a few drugs now which we've got in our armor and torium to to use so in terms of your approach to that with patients with severe Raynaud's who are at risk of digital ulceration how do you um what sort of pathway do you use for these patients so I think obviously if it's the the threatened digit then that's then that's a, a separate pathway and and, and certainly those with critical digital ischemia. But many of the drugs that we use for, for Raynaud's are also beneficial or, or helpful for digital ulcers as well. So typically we use oral um, vasodilators, things like calcium channel blockers, but we're increasingly using vasoactive therapies like PDE5 inhibitors, particularly sildenafil. So certainly in, in our practice, uh, after failure of a calcium channel blocker and in the context of connective tissue disease associated Raynaud's or digital ulcers, we'll use sildenafil. And that's in our, been very helpful. I think it's very helpful for their Raynaud's, but also in terms of prevention of digital ulcers and maybe in healing as well. But as we spoke about earlier, obviously we have access now to Bosantin, and that's a very powerful drug. It's a, a vasoactive drug uh, affecting or blocking endothelin, which is a very potent vasoconstrictor, and that's been shown to be very beneficial in preventing, but not the healing of digital ulcers. And so uh, when you talked before about the active management of ulcers is thinking about both the acute phase, but also how to prevent future ulceration. Is that something, Vicenta, that you would think about starting in that phase if you saw someone that you thought was had had a history of recurrent digital ulceration? Or would you tend to wait for that active ulcer to heal? Well, it's it's a good question. I, I don't think that in the acute setting, we wouldn't necessarily start it uh, as an inpatient, but we've been looking to start it fairly quickly. We know that bosantin is not necessarily going to help with the, the healing of active, active ulcers, but it will prevent future ulcer episodes. But it goes back to the principle that when a patient presents with ulcerative disease, we need to be thinking about preventing the next episode. So we need to be reviewing the sort of therapeutic strategy. Yeah, no, that sounds very sensible. 
I guess this is, I mean, this has huge um, morbidity um, for our patients, doesn't it, with systemic sclerosis in terms of their function and um, and also the pain, which is very significant um, for them when they have active digital ulceration. Um, I wonder, what do you um, see as to some of the next areas for research and um, the management of this condition? And also, I guess, in also the variability of reporting between clinicians um, of what, what a what is a digital ulcer? Yeah, so I think digital ulcers really do represent a major burden for our patients, um, not just during the acute phase, but in between episodes. So patients live with great fear, great anxiety, and they make great adaptations trying to prevent future ulcer episodes. So digital ulcers really are one of the the, the significant drivers of, of the pain and the dis disability associated with systemic sclerosis. So I think that although we've made great strides in, in our armory, we have drugs to prevent and to heal ulcers like intravenous prostanoids, but that comes at the cost of needing admission to hospital for up to five days. I think we've still got a long way to go and, and certainly things are not complete. One of the, uh, the major problems that have faced clinical trials for digital ulcers in the last five or ten years, as you say, is the, the differences and the difficulty in reporting and defining digital ulcers. So we know there's significant variation between experts in scleroderma, how they define and how they grade digital ulcers, but also between patients and rheumatologists themselves. So there's certainly been great strides trying to harmonise, including through the OMRAT vascular working group in scleroderma, which I'm one of the fellows, where we're looking at developing core outcome sets. There's been improvement and there's been advances in understanding how to define, how to categorise and classify digital ulcers. And I think that will help the next generation of, of future digital ulcer trials. But it's still a huge unmet area of need. Yeah. Yeah, I oh, know. Well, I think that gives us lots to think about. I mean, um, I guess sort of as we come to an end, the end of the podcast, is there anything else which you think that we've not talked about, which would be um, important to get across to our listeners who have, well, I think we'll all have very varying experience with seeing patients with digital ulcers. So I think that no two digital ulcers are the same. I think that they're hugely heterogeneous. I think every ulcer is a, a unique entity. It's a it's a, a micro environment, including with the, the the microorganisms that are involved. I think it's important to exclude proximal or large vessel disease because we know that patients with systemic sclerosis have an increased risk of large vessel disease. So particularly when people's ulcers change, they're ulcerated more or particularly asymmetrical, we need to think more higher up. Is there not only a micro, but a macrovascular disease as well? And again, going back to the, the, the practical approach, when, we, when people are having active ulcers, we need to be thinking about preventing the next round of ulcers as well. And I think there's a very key need for input from the MDT. So dedicated digital ulcer nurse clinics, the role of podiatrists, particularly to try and avoid pressure points, for example, on the feet that may ulcerate. And we haven't touched on the lower limb ulcerations either. We've focused on the finger or the hand ulcers. 
And in the lower limb, things are probably slightly more complicated because these are very mixed. They can be arterial, they can be venous, neuropathic, and, and potentially due to the skin fibrosis itself. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, um, Dr. Mike Hughes. There's a huge amount to take from listening to you talking today and lots to think about. I think um, I'd point listeners, um, if they found this interesting, to have a look at the BSR's December e-learning module, the um, Spotlight on Scleroderma for some further resources about this condition and scleroderma in um, more detail. And again, um, thank you very much for chatting with us and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.